Stanford University. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, the presentation I'm going to make today really talks to something that I um, was challenged challenged by over the last few years, which was how do you how do you grow a brand and, and, and keep it interesting? I mean, a lot of the challenges uh, with these larger brands now that are going under, um, I believe it's it because they just aren't able to kind of maintain any interest and, and they're, they're, they're boring and the customer is bored and they, you know, linens and things went under and Kmart's in trouble and if you, if you go to these stores and you look at what they're offering, it's, 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 really, it's really nothing. So um, I'm going to talk to you about a lot of ways that we, we've kind of kept our businesses interesting. We're still on the board of Kate and Jack Spade and we still help them with projects and mo mostly what I focus on is keeping the brand interesting, which is what I like to do. So coming up with innovative new ideas to keep the consumer intrigued, um, surprised, and engaged with the brand as it reaches maturity and grows. I'm also going to talk to you in the end a little bit about this new venture that, I, that I've launched just in the last few months, um, which as um, David described, which is, a, we don't really know what it is yet, but it's a mix of, um, it's kind of a studio and a store, and we wanted them both to be combined, and it's somewhat of an experiment, but we're having a lot of fun with it. Um, so one of the agencies uh, which I worked, uh, Shiat Day, when Jay Shiat was alive, he had a quote which I always loved, because as, I, as my company grew and grew, I always was challenged by this idea of how, how big can we get before we get bad. Like, it's rare that something gets bigger and gets better. I mean, it's just really hard to get bigger and get better. You know, in the early years of Kate and Jack Spade, um, it was new and the consumer was excited by it because it was something that came out of left field. It was a, a product they hadn't seen before. The idea was different from other, other ideas in that category, for example. Kate Spade wasn't like the European brands Prada and Gucci. It didn't have that, that pretentiousness to it. It wasn't a fashion company in the typical sense that you have to you know, really, really live your, your life you know, by, the, by the fashion magazines. It was basically an offering to people of, of like, here's how we live, here's what we like. And we built the brands about, around what we liked, around things we loved. And we brought all those things in that we loved into our store environment, into our advertising, and into all of our work. Because I said selfishly to my wife, I said, I've always wanted to, to do books, and I've always wanted to like, get involved in films, but I don't want to leave the business. So how can I write a film about handbags? Or how can, I, how can we create a book that has something to do with what we do? which will add interest to the stores and make the customer more intrigued with who we are as a business and who we are as, as, as people, because I think brands, brands are, are just like people. Can everyone hear me? Okay, great. So how, can, how big can we get before we get bad? How to keep growing brands interesting. One, um, my background was in advertising, so whenever we took on the advertising, everyone said, well, you know, make every ad look the same and make every ad lay out the same and make, have the same photographer shoot everything. And I, I felt that uh, that old strategy of making everything look the same was, was dated and that if you have a singular voice, it can, it can change. Uh, the look can change. I don't think the feeling can change, but the look can change. So I had a lot of fun doing campaigns each year with different, mainly fine art photographers who would, who would be challenged to do something um, for a fashion client. And I didn't care about the bag in the ad, to tell you the truth. My wife would always get upset with me and say, where's the bag? And I said, we're building something bigger than a bag company. We're building a world. And we're going to tell a story about someone who actually came from the Midwest and has this lifestyle 
that no one filled the void of, of yet about these kind of people who lived this way. No one in the accessory business had. And there are people like Ralph who were doing different things. But he was also, it was a club you couldn't get into. I thought it was a little bit too aspirational with helicopters and you know, showing him you know, in his private Bentley. And I said, there's, there's people who aren't like that, but who, who understand that, but just have these really wonderful kind of lives. So I'm going to show you a few of the ads and uh, walk you through it. Um, this is one ad that you can't see any product in, actually. But um, I always wanted to capture moments and, and have people relate to us emotionally. I wanted, I wanted to capture little moments in time that would really resonate with people so that they would identify with Kate Spade as this kind of company that was about like these, these little stories and these little moments. And I thought that was a stronger kind of way to make a connection with the consumer than just showing a model kind of in a beautiful setting, you know, with her bag on her lap. I, I, never, I never related to that, never felt people did. So I was trying to build a connection. I always felt they'll see the product in editorial pages. They'll see people wearing it. I don't think the advertising's job is just to sell the product. The advertising's job is to actually build a whole story about a brand. This was a story about a family. When Kate and I first moved to New York, we took our family for the first time to all our favorite places. And we just recreated that actual story with this woman, we called it Tennessee, the girl in the back and her little brother. And we had you know, this whole story about them. We did a little film on the, on the family, too, about they wanted to show their, their, their family that they had been to some cool art galleries. They showed them their favorite restaurants. It's kind of when you bring probably your families here and you take them to San Francisco. I thought that was a story that resonates with everyone, showing your parents how you've grown up and what you're doing in your life. This is one where she was with um, her little brother in the gallery. This is Jack Spade, which was the men's line. And I always had friends who were really contradictory in their personality. So they, they, they would smoke, and then they'd go play tennis or go run, run five or 10 miles. So we, we did a lot of advertising that, for Jack, which I thought was so honest and true. So someone would be like, have uh, one of the ads was he had an, an orange in one hand, and then he had a Perrier bottle filled with cigarette ashes in the other. Um, and one walking with Visine being put in his eyes while he's strolling his, strolling his baby down the street. So, so, so we, had, we had these ideas of friends we knew and people we knew and all these kind of these little kind of misfit people who were out there, but it was more real. So, so we put these, these things together with a photographer named Susanna Howe. This is another part of the Tennessee campaign where we, we took our family to the Carlisle and, and the brothers kind of making a connection and showing the doorman there. This is an older ad, which was done for a clothing company, actually just a pant company called Duckhead. And what we did is we went to Athens, Georgia, where they outsold Levi's. And we found Georgia? Athens is a great town. I, I, I didn't think I'd ever get out of there, actually. Uh, I, I loved it so much that I was going to you know, re-enlist. Uh, but we found that people really loved their old, their old, their old Duckhead pants. So we, we actually asked kids on the street if we could actually take their pants and shoot them. And then I'd, we'd ask them with the tape recorder to tell us, you know, what, what, what's happened when, you know, your life in these pants. We had like 10 of these executions, you know. And you can read that, like this is one of those boring lectures. So that's your, your, your reality today. Um, <laughs> but then the other thing we did, most, most advertising you know, companies will tell you like that they're in, in Neiman Markets and Dillard's and all these great places. But we found out that they were in, like, I think you can read it there, but they were in, like, trading posts and they were in gas stations. And we thought that was even more interesting than the fact they were in Neiman Marcus. So we'd always list 
the places they were, but they were always the worst places. And then we had this line, you can't get them old until you get them new, because we hated the idea of people not living the life in the tent and making it their own. A lot of people sold, you know, kind of faded, beat up versions of khakis, but these were the authentic khakis. So that was another example of making the advertising personal, which I think is good. The other thing that was important when we were working in the company, although we loved all the other things, is that, you know, we really, really had to love what we did. I mean, we couldn't fake it. I mean, Kate really had to want to wear what she made. Um, and she just, she just loved it, and she was so detail-oriented, it drove me crazy because I, I, I wasn't. I would have an idea and then, then walk out of the room. So what we did in our first bag, we, we designed a simple square tote that would fit magazines in it that Katie said was just practical, and it was, it was, it was lightweight, and it, just, it revolutionized the handbag business in 1993. And it was just such a simple idea that no one would have thought about it. I mean, everyone was taken back, and they said, that's so easy. There's no way. She's not a designer. That's, that doesn't count. Um, and then she went on to make shoes she liked. And then she went on to make other bags. And then we made shoes again. So just the point there is that, you know, if you're going to do something, you know, make sure you love what you're doing, what you're making, because a lot of times people will try to get you to make things that they want you to make and not what you make, and it usually backfires. We had one story where we were very poor, and a company store, Henry Bendel, asked us to make bags out of mohair in fluorescent colors. We made them against Katie's will so we could pay our bills, and none of them sold. And they called us and said, will you take them back now? <laughs> so we lost money. We were embarrassed. So just, I think trust your instincts is important. Um, don't be afraid to have fun with what you do. I think a lot of people take themselves really seriously in fashion. I don't think that, you know, I've seen Ralph crack a joke in my life, you know, so I think it's like, some little, little, there's a little void there that you can actually do kind of traditional fun things and actually make fun of yourself and actually have a good time with it. And I think that's very humanistic. I think people appreciate that. So we made little gloves and hats that had uh, different little ideas to them that came really out of the design department, not, I mean, the graphic design department. Someone who's here, Alan Dye, worked with me. He's in the striped sweater right there. Um, worked on a lot of these, but we incorporated the design graphic design department into the product design department, which a lot of companies don't do. So someone in graphic design would say, what about a taxi mitten so you can hail taxis? And we'd walk it over to design, and they would do technically get the, get the product made, and we'd look at it together. But there were a lot of projects like this that actually made, we did inner city beach bags. Everyone did, you know, Jamaica. <laughs> and everybody had a bag that said Florida. We did, we did the five boroughs. We did Queens, Harlem. Brooklyn, you know, all the ones. So every, they, those sold very, very well. So we did the beach bag for the, for the urban set. <clears throat> These were some of the Jack Spade products we did um, besides the bags. We, we bought online this little frog dissection kit, and we actually then, then silk screened on a bag this, this frog with um, crutches, which got us in a lot of trouble with PETA. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we collaborated with everyone who's done on skateboards. We had kids from a Boy Scout troop make us uh, slingshots that we sold in a nice package. We did a Scrabble collaboration where we designed the exterior of the Scrabble game, and Scrabble did the, obviously, game itself. And then we'd have ping pong tournaments that we would host, and we did these ping pong ball, ping pong uh, paddle covers. So there are a lot of, and that, that silver belt there you see says, it's monogrammed usually, but we did two. One said loser, the other said 666. So, so, so we took the traditional kind of bag and twisted it. This is a product that we did um, at Partners in Spain, my new company. My, my partner and I now like to make these little 
I guess they're just little sculptures. And we found an old boat that we really liked at an antique store, and we named it the SSS Booze Cruise. And then we went to a, a hobby store and put all these spring breakers on the, on the boat partying. And then we hooked up an audio with an iPod, which you can't see here. And you put on it, and it plays Leonard Skinner's Freebird. And we sell that as a, as, a, as a sculpture for $1,800. So if anyone's interested, you're welcome to talk to me after the class. This was a fireplace that was left in our, in, our, in our new store. And we thought we should use it. We should do something with it. And in New York, a lot of people have faux fireplaces. Basically, it's bricked over, and they don't, they don't work. So we had our friend who's a painter actually paint on canvas you know, a fire that could go into the faux fireplace. So we offer that as a service, it's faux fireplace paintings. You give us the dimensions, they'll paint the fire for you. Someone actually requested one with a rosebud from Citizen Kane, with, with the little sled burning inside of it. And so we get orders on these things all the time, just to they kind of, why have the brick showing? Why not have something else inside? And that was just, that story's about resourcefulness. <laughs> This is another product that we had made, <laughs> custom for Jack Spade. We found someone in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and said, could you try to do a custom version for us? Um, this is a project we did for J. Crew, which I'll get to later, but I'll talk about it later. Uh, this is a product we did at Partners in Spade for Valentine's Day. We, we, we actually bought online a GPS tracking system. And we put a false bottom in the bag that actually is underneath and so you could buy it for your girlfriend or your boyfriend and say, be mine forever. Then you could track wherever they were, <laughs> wherever they were. And, and um, <clears throat> it was really a sweet, sweet, sweet way to tell them you love them. <laughs> I always believe that you know, stores shouldn't always look the same, that they, they, sh they should feel like, like one-of-a-kind stores. Certain elements have to be consistent because you want to know you're in you know, the, the, the store that you think you're in. I mean, I don't really care, but I think that's what most people think. So we always had the rule that like 30% of the store would be totally different from the other stores. A lot of found furniture. We wouldn't do it with fixtures. And we'd be in different locations, offbeat places, and we didn't believe in much signage. We thought customers like to discover things and find things on their own rather than be beaten, beaten over the head with the, with the brand message. So, the store in Japan was a real challenge. We didn't have much money, and it was an old faux Tudor house that was across from the Prada store designed by Herzog. We said, how can we beat that? So we actually built, it's just a silver, like Monopoly, like silver fence around it, right? And then what we did is we change out what we'd attach to it every three months. Um, so at one time, it was just grain ribbons, wheels, obviously. Other times it was flowers. Other times it was pictures, like just found pictures, like found photographs. And it just was a way to kind of take that idea. And like we look across at Prada, the Herzog building, and they were you know, laughing at us, I'm sure. But um, it just made it, made it a fun, fun solution to a, to a store that could have been very obvious. This is the interior of the New York store. This is another interior of the store. We put a lot of found things in the stores. We always like stayed away from the idea of um, putting ads on the walls like most stores and just we, we usually found young artists to put paintings in and sell them so it was all part of the experience. Paul Smith said to me once, he said, anything that reeks of opportunity I run from. So anything that's obviously going to work, we do it the opposite way. This is the Jack Spade store in Soho. 
you'll see on the bottom that there's a little lending library where we said, take a book, leave a book for a dollar. And we called it, you know, it was on the honor system. And my friend said, I love the honor system because I can get things for free. <laughs> and so as you can see, when our company was sold, this sign became about 10 times larger. <laughs> so if you go now to the store, you'll see Jack Spade, you know, on both sides of the street. Um, this is the interior of Jack. We always had people doing different illustrations inside. These were, I think, fake stores that we made up. What was this one called? Uh, yeah, we did. We did like baby, like Lane Bryant, and we did all these little stores. Like, what was the one? Uh, I don't know. It was agent provocateur enfant. <laughs> so we always had fun. We always had little interactive shows going on in the space with a lot of found other things. And the reason we did this was that people wanted to come back and see what we were doing again. And it added a lot of value to what we did. They felt we were, we were making interesting things, and therefore the bags you know, made them feel, feel like they were, they were really a part of some kind of interesting group of, group of things. This is the current store that's in uh, NoHo. It's on Great Jones. So the name is Partners in Spade. We, we built an atrium in the window and had it sanctioned by the New York Bird Club. It had a... Uh, fan and a heater in it, and the birds loved it, and they would tell us all the time. And um, uh, we got notes from everybody saying, you're terrible, you're using birds to sell products. Um, I said, first of all, we haven't sold anything yet. So, <laughs> so that's not true. I wish that were true. Um, but we've used this window in different ways. We always thought the window is like an art you know, exhibit, and we should not just focus on product. We should make people curious about who we are and what we do. And I think that adds value to our, to, our, to our branding firm. The interior of the store is actually just an ongoing kind of mix of different people's passions. So these drawers, for example, we'll ask a friend and say, hey, you're my friend J.P. Williams. What do you want to do in the drawer? And he would come back and say, you know, I, I want to put all my socks in the drawer. Is that okay? I don't have a sock drawer. So we have a sock drawer. So every time you open one, there's something new in it. This one was... Myra Callan had a collection of Super Bowls from around the world. So you open it up, and all these Super Bowls just roll out and roll back. Um, this one was, um, what is that one? Oh, those are old fish from somewhere. I don't know where. But the, the interesting thing is, even in small spaces, you can get creative people who aren't technically artists or aren't in Chelsea galleries always have these collections. These are palettes, just old painter's palettes that we've been collecting for years that we sell. And these are, these are children's sketchbooks. And so this is a man who has an amazing collection of globes. And we just said, do you want to just show him in our store? Because he lives on the fifth floor in this old, like, crazy apartment. He goes, yeah, I'd love to. And up here, these are all found photography books. Um, so the store is a rotating gallery going on the front. And the, and the back is a studio where we do all of the work for our clients. But it keeps us engaged with the streets and what people are doing. Now, this was the latest project we did for J. Crew, And J. Crew asked us, the brief was, you know, the men's never gets any attention. It's always just J. Crew women, and it's not perceived as cool. Uh, the assignment is, how do you make the men's stand out and, and, and be part of the conversation with, like, Jack Spades and Tom Browns and all these new designers like Rag and Bone? And so my partner and I went back, and we thought about it, and we said, you know, doing an ad in GQ or running billboards is really not going to solve the problem. What they should do is create a three-dimensional experience. And... I knew of this space, which everyone who ever lived in Tribeca knew as 
the liquor store, which was a liquor store originally, then a bar. And I knew it was for rent for $10,000 a month, which is less expensive than a page in GQ. So we got in a car with Mickey Drexler, and we drove him to this space. And we said, this is, this is the answer to your problem. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we're going to transform this into a one-of-a-kind exclusive men's store by J. Crew. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you need a place where guys can go where, where they can be seduced in their own way. They don't want to walk through the women's store and go downstairs and look at the men's. You know? And the one thing will be a beacon for what you stand for. And when people read the editorials on it, even if they're in Minneapolis, they're going to start thinking of your men's differently and offer a, a, a site, you know, on, I mean, space on your website for it. We'll do gallery showings. So he said, do it. So we designed the entire space. We actually hooked up the neon sign that wasn't working. We said, do not put J. Crew on the outside because it'll look like a chain store, and this is a special store for you. And we kept the bar in the back. We did a gallery in the dressing room. We have shows there all the time. We had so much fun finding just like old liquor bottles and this all, all this junk, basically, that you find in the back of bars, in the back of dive bars, and recreated kind of those bars that, you know, we all love to kind of, you know, go to and you know, then, then regret it in the morning. So this is a really really great thing for them. And now, actually, J. Crew is being talked about as one of the kind of coolest men's lines in the country. We also edited a lot of the, a lot of the merchandise and said, don't put those ugly t-shirts in there. Let's just, let's just put the good stuff in. So that was just a way to solve a problem in a, in a way that he wouldn't expect and, and um, they wouldn't expect. There's another picture of the interior. We helped them buy different things from other companies for the store and showed other products. Had a lot of art for sale and books for sale. We did an in-store shop with a company called The Strand, which is a, I think I hit a button wrong, right? Should I go backwards again? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Well, this leads into the next one. And if you're going to hang something, make it mean something. I really believe that you have an opportunity in a store environment or a restaurant environment to really make it experiential for people and to give opportunity to young creative people, the opportunity to show their work and, and let people interact with it and also sell it. A lot of people make the mistake of just kind of leaving the walls white or showing copies of ads or models, and, and, and it just it doesn't really add to the experience whatsoever. So we always found and reached out to a lot of young artists who would always sell work and would always show it in our stores, and it made it feel more like a boutique than like a retail environment, more like a salon um, uh, than a store. This is a Jack Spade store again with different shows on the wall. We would have different shows every few months. We had a vintage motorcycle helmet show. This is the dressing room in J. Crew, which is only probably 10 feet by 10 feet. But we would have shows inside. We would invite everybody. And we would have like an opening. And you'd walk in, and there would only be 10 pieces up on the railing. And this is one of the other shows that we had there. But it kept, it, it kept people coming back, and they always wanted to see what we'd do next. We're doing, obviously, it had to be small shows. Um, one of the other things we recommended to J. Crew was that to be an authority on men's, we should write a book on it. A book has much more credibility than an ad. So we wrote a book called What a Man Should Know. And it was 50 Things a Man Should Know. It had very little to do with fashion. It was like, how do you grill a fish on the beach without you know, a grill? Um, and written really well by a poet named Max Black, who we hired. We outlined the book. We designed the book. And then we had a friend named Hugo Guinness do the design, uh, the illustrations there. And then we did, for the opening of the book and the book signing, we actually changed the window out to show kind of what we were doing. This is my current space now. We have someone who customizes uh, fixed gear bikes for us. You can pick your colors. And so that's been kind of fun to have. 
the other thing that's important is a lot of companies are afraid to collaborate. It's only their brand and their brand alone. They would never share the, the, the spotlight with anyone else. And I think collaborations really show that you actually think other people are talented as well and that you're not the only person in the world who can actually make a tie. And you're not the only one who can actually you know, do, so, do, do, do a pair of socks. So um, one of the collaborations we did from my childhood, we went to Haagen-Dazs. And I think the most interesting ones are unconventional ones. And when I was growing up, they made t-shirts with all their flavors, strawberry and boysenberry and coffee and chocolate chocolate chip. And so we brought back the old t-shirts. We did a line of bags, which did very, very well, and just did different colors and did totes with Haagen-Dazs. So that was a really, really fun collaboration. This was what we did with the Strand Bookstore in New York, which is a famous old bookstore, kind of like City Lights, is we said, and, well, Ralph Lauren bought the, his books from, from the Strand. He would never acknowledge that the Strand bought the books. He wanted everybody to think that he bought all the books himself and that his team always curated the books. But we said, here, it's an in-store Strand shop. And it gave credibility to J. Crew that they wouldn't have by just saying they did it on their own. Because anybody who knows the Strand knows it's the real deal. Then we did a line of ties with the Strand, with the Strand logo. And we did a reading at the Strand. Um, actually in their art book department later with, with the book we did ourselves. This is actually something different. This was something we did in the window. This is a, an artist named Jason Poland. We sent out an email and told everyone if they wanted anything drawn on Saturday from 12 until 6 o'clock, Jason would be in the window. And all you'd have to do is pass a note through this little hole on the side here and just wait for like three minutes. And if it was like an elephant, just an elephant, he'd draw the elephant, he'd pass it back out, and you'd have to hand him a $20 bill. And so we did that all day long, and we, you know, we had lines of people in the door. And um, it just really brought people into the store in a, in a climate where no one's really shopping right now. I don't know why the Scrabble game's there. Uh, this was another event we did. We did the, uh, the Art of the Bicycle uh, to get people to come by. and we people from all over the world doing the Bicycle Film Festival. We actually partnered with the Bicycle Film Festival. And they travel from Japan to San Francisco. You probably know about it. But we were able to show all these great, great bikes and brought in a lot of people who were interested in that. This is just a typical collaboration. This is, again, with Hugo Guinness, who did something for the bags. This is a, another part of, I think, I think retail and any business here, and whether it's retail or not, just I think it's important to kind of surprise them. And, I don't think they have to be able to understand exactly who you are. I think part of it should be that they don't understand 10% of who you are. I mean, it's like a friend. Once you know them that well, you kind of don't want to hang out with them anymore, you know? <laughs> you want them to do something new and, like, fall down or, like, come up with something crazy or say, I'm going to go take classes at MIT next week. And you're like, what? I didn't know, I didn't know you were like that. And then you, kind of, then, you, then you kind of like them more. I mean, there's something interesting about that. Maybe not MIT, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so we had, we had an artist, actually, we couldn't figure out a new way to do a shopping bag. And we thought everybody's done a shopping bag that's, you know, with their name on it or gilded or, you know, beautifully, you know, kind of, kind of colored. So we had this artist come into the store and we had this idea to buy a plain white shopping bag and actually have them illustrate everything in the store on the shopping bags. So when anyone buys a product, they get the bag with an original drawing on it in the bag. So if you buy, for example, this is part of this trophy. We did these uh, trophies which we sell, which are called uh, backdated confidence trophies, which you can order. 
And the backdate confidence trophies are for people like myself who lost a swim meet when he was in eighth grade and still can't get over it and still has insecurities about himself. So you can go in our store and we have a trophy manufacturer down the street and say, you know, my husband, he's still hung up. This golf thing happened, you know, and he never, he was second place. Can you make one up first place for him? So we, so we do this. This is a motocross champ. But that's one of the services that we offer to uh, our customers to keep them, you know, coming back for more. Uh, this is another product that we made that uh, I think Alan Dye actually worked on. But uh, just having fun things around that aren't in your category. I mean, we're not you know, just making handbags. We're trying to connect with an audience. And everybody likes birds and everybody likes pencils. Um, this is, everyone had made compilation CDs, you know, Starbucks and other, other companies have done this, but we wanted to do it differently. So one of our, our, our friends in the art department knew a band named Beaumont, and Beaumont was a young band out of England. And we had this idea, why don't we, why don't we ask Beaumont, Beaumont to actually, why don't we send them a bunch of material on Kate Spade, let them visit the stores, and then just do a CD on what they think Kate Spade sounds like. So the original tracks, the whole thing's original tracks on what they think Kate Spade sounds like. And they were beautiful names. They had all these beautiful things about them. And we sold them in the store. We sold them online. But it was, it was another way to be original and show that we're innovative and differentiate ourselves from all the other companies in our category. And also, you know, the wholesale stores that sold us, like even Marcus and Sachs, really didn't offer this kind of experience. They couldn't, the customer couldn't understand really who we were they only saw the bags. So we had to do these other kinds of fun projects. We also really got into candy. And usually at the holiday season, we design in the art department all the packaging for it. And we get a chocolate manufacturer to make the chocolates for us. And it just was something fun to have around when we, uh, when we were going through the holidays. We usually did this on, on, on most holidays, whether it's Mother's Day or, or Halloween. On Halloween, we had children come and egg the store's windows and leave all the egg on the windows and called the press and said, somebody egged our windows and they wrote it up. So everybody wanted to come see all the vandalism at the store that day. <clears throat> These are just books we made. I always wanted the art department to be able to kind of stretch creatively and keep their minds open. So everyone was able to present a book idea every six months and then we would make it um, for them. So, you know, this is dysfunctional family album with found photographs with writing underneath it saying Jim and his mom are going out in a boat, but they've got like a 12-pack of beer with them, you know, in a, in a motorboat. Um, Alan did the, his grandmother's house, which is 533 Prospect Avenue. The flip book is one page of someone doing a flip. The match, match book is actually, it's all the, our favorite places with the match. It says Raul's, it says, you know, whatever, Houston's. It's all the matches from the restaurants with their names. It was 185 days in the life of an airport motel marquee, which is about a time I lived in, in L.A. and I would drive by an airport motel marquee every day and I hated my life there and I would take a Polaroid of it every day and write like UFO convention today. And uh, we just started making all these little books and people loved them. The store really, really started building a little reputation for doing nice little self-published books. We also, because we, we wanted to do films, started making our own short films and posting them on the website and showing them at film festivals. So uh, these are four of them. They were done by young up-and-coming directors like Mike Mills, who you, you may know. Um, some of the others were done by Casey and Van Neistat, who you should look up, the Neistat brothers, really great filmmakers. We're doing a show with them right now for HBO. So we had a little <laughs> film division. This is Paperboys by Mike Mills again, which actually was basically a, a, an idea that, 
that we had to, we had courier bags, we made courier bags and thought, wow, what if we do a documentary on paper boys instead of, you know, paying for an advertisement for the courier bag, what if we actually like make a full length movie and do it, you know, really on the, on the fly and then sell it. So we actually made it and with courier bags the guys had and at the end of the DVD we could talk about the courier bag at Jack Spade and what it was, you know, on the back end of the director's cut or whatever. But it turned out to be a great film. It ended up selling to Sundance, and Sundance still runs it, and now you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. So that was an advertisement that went off the kind of expense side of the balance sheet onto the kind of, um, what's that other side, the one that's better? <laughs> the revenue side. This was another short film that we wrote about a girl who stole handbags, and then just for no reason at all, she stole bags, and they would take things out of the bag, didn't want the money, but actually take opera tickets, for example, and then she'd steal her identity and go to the opera and just watch the opera. And then she'd be at the opera and she'd find another woman's bag, she'd sneak up behind that was on the floor, and she'd take whatever's out of her, her, take her bag to Central Park, and then look in the bag and she would find, for example, something to a horse show. And she would go to the horse show, all dressed up like for the horse show, and just discard the bag. And so we, short, we shot it as a short film, and then the director said, I think it's a feature film. I think we can actually do this whole thing at 73 minutes long, and we can go to film festivals with it. So it became the longest brand film, I think, ever, ever in history. So suddenly we had this film that won every film festival in the States, and then it, it won at Cannes. So we went on stage at Cannes, where it got the director's Fortnite Award for, they didn't even know it was a, for a product. They had no idea what it it wasn't, there's a bag in every scene called The Pleasure Being Robbed, which we wrote, and then that went on to like, you know, it's now sold the rights to Paris, and Agnes B has picked it up to show in all of her stores. So it's become a, it's just these ways of doing things can, can be less obvious than you think. These are some of the other books that we made early on. One is 83, which is my friend's grandfather. It's one page long out 83 candles. The other is Medical Professional Smoking. And that is uh, across the street from my home are, is a hospital actually the cancer ward. And it's so funny to me, every day they're out there all puffing away in their scrubs. Um, this was this ready-made project that we had. And if you don't know what a ready-made is, it was what Duchamp did first when he said, all right, the urinal is a piece of art because I say so. So we wanted to do this, this, this there's this literary magazine called Bald Eagle run by Glenn O'Brien. He said, do an ad, do an ad, do an ad. And I said, I don't want to do an ad, but if you'll change the name of the magazine for me, to Jack Spade, then that will be my ad, because I want to seem like I actually have my own literary magazine, because I always wanted one. And then people will think I always had one. So I had this ready-made project in my, in my head where I wanted to actually, I always wanted a hardware store, and I always wanted an old barber shop. I always wanted these little businesses that were perfect as they were, but I knew if I did my own version, it would be kind of like a, a fake version, like a, a person like me doing it, you know? So I, I continued this project on, and I made a plexiglass sign and went to businesses uh, that I liked and thought had character and went into the owner and said, I'll give you $100 if you will let me change the sign for a day and it would be Jack Spade store for a day. Um, so I always wanted this restaurant called Lucky Strike, so it became Jack Spade. We couldn't get rid of Lucky Strike, unfortunately. Um, this is another bar that I really like called Maloney's, which is downtown. On the left, it's actually a hotel, which I really like, and I wanted to have that for a day. Um, I'm going backwards now, aren't I? Where was I? Oh, that's the wrong way. Um, oh, 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 I gotta go this way. That's my father. <laughs> I'm 
not going to answer. I don't know if this is a... AV, AV, I'm having difficulty. Oh, there you are. This needs to go back. Yeah, I think it's just this one, right? That's the wrong way. one of the hot dogs, right? What's before the hot dogs? Hamburgers? Oh, here we go. There we there's where we were. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. So that was that was the the one day I wanted this empire of tiny businesses, and I had it for a day. And we did a little film on it as well. Um, this is about different products too. These are the Marlon Brando hats we bought uh, at an auction, and we sold them at Jack Spade, uh, and put a little movie on the website for the Marlon Brando hats. Again, just to make keeping the whole idea of this is keeping a growing brand interesting, and then not not stopping your your, your kind of kind of interest in, in making people smile. This is a brand should act like a friend and act accordingly. I really do believe that if you have a relationship with a brand, it should be personal, um, especially for a brand like, like ours. So during Fashion Week, when there was a big controversy about models being too thin, all of our guys in Jack Spade went to the Bryant Park fashion tent and handed out cookies with hamburgers and hot dogs and said, Jack cares. And it got writ written up around the press. They're really helping this, this problem that exists with anorexia or something like that. Um, another thing that we're doing in our new space, which is Partners in Spade, is this summer we're having an avant-garde preschool. And we hired a teacher um, who has a summer off who's going to kind of oversee a program where kids can come in for free on Saturdays. And we'll bring in our friends who are filmmakers, musicians, artists, People who do all kinds of different things and just do a course in that for the kids. And we ask a $30 donation if they can't afford it and it goes to the local public school. And we, we started this this year and it will be available in June if any of you want to uh, attend. This was actually just yesterday. We thought it would be really fun during our hard times here is to uh, offer free accounting advice. So we went online on Craigslist and found a retired CPA, and we asked him if he would mind coming in and sitting in the window and helping people prepare their taxes and give them advice all day until uh, midnight, or until 8 o'clock, actually. He couldn't stay that late. Um, so it was really funny seeing in the environment you saw earlier this man dressed in his suit, and we gave him a little green visor to sit down with with his calculator. like. And all these, a lot of people were lined up, just waiting in line to get advice. And I was laughing so hard, I couldn't believe it. I just thought it was the funniest thing. Because it seemed so straight. People didn't understand it. <laughs> this is just the point that I believe, and I believe you can overbrand. Um, I believe that you can, you, know, you, you can overdo it and bore people um, by putting your, your name out there too much. It's happened to a lot of companies, and they've had to back off. It really, it's not true that you, you have to brand everything. I think there has to be some mystery to it. There's one example of overbranding. Uh, this is, again, my father. Every time, this is just a theory. I always try to balance kind of the team at the office. And I thought, well, every time we have to hire this real serious business financial person, I think we have to hire someone to keep the balance up to hire someone really fun. So just hire someone creative. Not necessarily this person, but just someone who would, who would keep I think, I think the, the art and commerce, kind of the tension between the two keeps the company interesting. I think you have to be solvent to be able to do the creative things you want to do. So I think you need to, you need to restrict that balance. I think, that's, I think that's it. I think I wanted to end on that picture. <laughs> um, I'm now open for questions.
I think that, I mean, even during the time at Kate Spade, we always had fun. So I think you can do both. I didn't sell it to go have more fun. It just got too big, and I thought the challenge, we did it. And we knew what it was creatively. You know, the challenge for us was building it. And now it's a, a job of you know, running a big business, which wasn't really what we wanted to do. We had a daughter recently. We wanted to have more time. It was more personal than it was professional. We could have done it, but we didn't want to. But I think the challenge is, I think being creative is actually, and you do teach, teach you this in school, is actually valuable to people. And I think that those kinds of things, while someone might say, why would you have that accountant in the store? What does that add to your company? It makes them smile and makes them think about you when you send them out a little message like that. You know, I think it makes, it, 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 it kind of puts a halo over your, over your product and says, this thing is kind of a smart thing, so I want to wear it. You know, it's about this, this, this idea. Um, and I think that you just have to make sure you're solvent because a lot of companies will do a lot of creative things, but they won't have a product that they can sell. We had that nylon bag that was that probably paid our bills for 10 years. So we always were conscious of the idea of we have to make sure look at sales. I'd have to look at sales numbers, know what was selling. And Kate had said, you only made the bags so you could do the other things. I said, yeah, but I had to make the bags to do the other things. So we had a core product that was what was basically supporting all of the other um, ventures that, that we pursued. But I believed in them, and I believed that they actually helped build the business. And I, and I still believe in that. And I think a lot of companies who value that see real results in it. You just can't do too much of it. I mean, I couldn't do what Ralph does and like have 20 Bentleys in my showroom, you know, and say, look, isn't this cool? It works for some. But um, I just think that's why this last picture is, is so important. It's like we had a guy like that, and that, neither are my father, by the way. Um, and when it got too stiff, you know, you saw the joy coming out of the, the, the team. You know, people knew on the street whether it was a great place to work, whether it was creative. So when you're trying to recruit people, you wanted them to say, well, I have an offer from Calvin Klein, I have one from Donna Karen, one from Kate Spade. You wanted them to say, oh, I'm going to go to Kate Spade for a little less money because I know the environment's great and they're really going to let me be creative. And so there are a lot of advantages to it that I think, I think added, added to it and the reputation of the company. You know, your internal stuff is known externally. You know, they know what it's like there. Like a lot of people would say, I'm not going to work at this other place, even though it's more money, because I know I can't do those books. Or I'm not going to be around people who think that way. Or we allow me to experiment with an avant-garde preschool. Those kinds of things. Did you have like a holy shit? We got to change this moment. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, well, when we started, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. Honestly, very naive, which I think was a benefit because we didn't, you know, know that you know it could fail so so easily. Um, but I think that's why it was different because we neither of us had worked in design in that category or for other companies in that category. It was an advertising person with an editorial person together not knowing that you can't do these things, right? 
Um, and then I thought, you know, we'll, we'll do it one year and see how it goes, and maybe if we don't make it, we, you know, we go back to our old jobs and go back again. But there was a time when we had two other minority partners we went to, and just we couldn't do it anymore. We said, we're leaving. We quit. It's too much. We're not making money. We're working like crazy. We don't have a life. And they said, we just both left our jobs to join you. <laughs> they said, you can't leave. And he says, you know how many employees you have now? I said, no, no, we don't. How many do we have? And they said, we have 50 employees now, and they've all left their jobs for this. And that's when I realized, hey, shit, this is responsibility, too. And we've got a lot of people to take care of. And, um, and that was scary. That's when I said, let's just do this. You know, let's, let, let's build it. Let's do what we can do. And... Um, get it to the point where, as I said in the beginning, how big you get before you get bad. It's also how big can you get before you stop having fun. I mean, some people can make it $10 billion and have fun, but I don't think all businesses need to be big. You know, I think, I think Kate Spade, for me right now, is the perfect size. I don't think there need to be 50 more you know, stores around the world. You know, that happened with the Gap. Now they're closing them all. So, you know, our idea was to kind of get it to a certain size that we thought was right for the business and then go do something else. So. I probably didn't even answer your question. <laughs> yes? Was there a split second at the beginning where you thought you had to come up with a better name than Kate Spade? Um, no, actually. We weren't married at the time, and her name is Kate Brosnahan. There was a split second I was worried <laughs> she would want to use that name. <laughs> um, but we combined our name, and what Katie always says is um, we weren't married. Her mother always said, you can't do that. You're not married. You can't do that. And my mom, Katie, said, well, you know, it's like, we were just combining it. It's like Dolce & Gabbana. And she said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> They're another couple. <laughs> okay. um, now, we thought the name was really, really actually simple and nice. And that's why Jack was named Jack, because it was a counterpart to Kate. And we did it in all caps instead of all lowercase. And I wanted a single syllable. And um, if you notice, the label's kind of Jack is stacked and Kate is just smaller. But I wanted the two to kind of have this relationship between each other. But Jack was made up. Jack was inspired by Jack Welch, the CEO of, um, former CEO of GE, and Jack Kerouac, because they told all the employees it was always about that tension between running a business and being you know, crazy. So that was, that, was, that was the line we walked. All right, that's it. Cheers first. first. Hi. Hi. So if you were to give just a really quick rundown of like the last, from the very beginning of what initiated the spark of starting up to just a, just here and there, summary of timeline of the story, like how did it start? And then you started with the bag and then at that point, you were able to break out to more creative, or were you meaning to do all of this before? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, uh, but my answer won't. It started <laughs> because Katie, my wife, left her job. She really didn't like the, the world of fashion. She didn't like how catty it was. And one day she came home, and someone was mean to her, sis her assistants. They'd always been mean to her. But she, she was fine, but to a young girl, and she just quit on the spot. She came home and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, we're going to start a business. I said, I, I have a good job, and we don't have any kids, and our rent's fair. 
So we went out and we'd have drinks and talk about what business it would be. It was a travel agency. Then I thought I wanted to make a soda, a Jones soda or something. I don't know why. I didn't know how to do it either, but anyway. <laughs> we had all these ideas we knew nothing about. But, um, and then I remember saying with her one day, she goes, I love, you know, I, I love the bags. And I said, why don't you start a bag company? Why don't we start a bag company? How hard, hard can that be? I goes, try it for a year. So we did a cigarette campaign once that was uh, in advertising. Try it for a year. If you don't like them, quit. So, so it, was, it, was, it was just, I said, let's try it for a year. And if, we, if, we, if it doesn't get anywhere, you know, we, we quit. And you can go back and you can crawl back on your knees and, you know, go back to that mean place you were before. And I can always stay in advertising. So I stayed in advertising and worked while Kate went to Brooklyn and got the samples made. So the simple process, we just wanted to make a product. We didn't think about this, starting this company. It was just about making a pro single product. So we weren't daunted by that. And what would the cost be? You buy the material, you have a pattern maker help you. And then you go to these little shows where they have all young designers go to show trade shows. And we had the smallest table in the back near the hot dog stand because we couldn't afford anything. But the best editors and the best stores always looked for new people. So they came back, and I think we spent $1,000 on the booth, or $500, but we only sold $300 worth, and Kate cried. And I said it was, it was Barney's and Fred Siegel, and that's amazing. So it's the right thing. And then the next show came around, and we set up our little card table, brought furniture from our house in, tried to make it look really great. Because from advertising, I knew you wanted to have kind of a personality to it. You just want to put it on a card table, you know what I mean? So, so we made a little feeling for it, and we were both in there. And, you know, again, then Saks came in and said, wow, I like this, but who do you sell to? And we said, well, Barney's and Fred Siegel. And because they, they think they're the leaders, the Barney's and Fred Siegel, they go, oh, okay, I'm going to buy some too. Because they want permission to buy, to know that it's in like Colette's or some other store, right? So they bought two. And then we went back, and we figured out how to make the bags. We, took the, we ordered the fabric, went to Brooklyn, made it. And I worked in advertising for two years during that time. We didn't make any profits. We would split sample sale money. And we worked out of our apartment. There was one point where we had the, the boxes were everywhere. We'd get faxes from Japan at night. People would be stuffing them in the morning. And we'd have to, we had one trail from, from the, right before shipping from the bed to the bathroom and then from the bed to the door. We couldn't even use our kitchen. So it was just, you know, we were just young. We were at the age that I think you're willing to do anything. And I was worried, honestly, my motivation was I saw like, my, my dad and older friends in advertising losing their jobs like they are today in their 40s and 50s. And I thought, I want to control my destiny. Like, I want to own something. I don't care what it is. And just so happened it turned out to be handbags um, because advertising was paying better than had editorial work. So she could leave and I couldn't. And I could help with the fabric. And then that just grew. And then one day, Saks and Neiman's in the same year said, I'm going to buy for every store. We didn't know how to make the bags. We didn't have enough factories to make the bags. So the business went from like one million to eight million. And then the Japanese came and said, we want to open up a whole distribution network for you in Japan. And then the business went the next year, doubled again to 16 million. And so we were just keeping up with it. I mean, we were just working hard to keep up with it. And during it, I was so bored making women's bags, I started working on Jack Spade so that I could, like, wouldn't shoot myself. <laughs> I'd be sitting in meetings, and she's like, do you like this pink or this pink? She goes, is that one too Pepto-Bismol? I go, I don't know. Can I, can I leave now? Aren't there, aren't there these other girls here to help you with that? Aren't there other people here? No, no, no. I really want your opinion. I go, it's too Pepto-Bismol. Um, so it just started to take off. We didn't realize it. Like eight years went by, and we were just trying to keep up with it. And then we hired a, a president because we thought
thought we needed one who didn't do a very good job. I retained CEO title, but I really was working more on the creative side. We did all the in-house advertising. Hired people from other, other areas who'd never done fashion we thought would be good. And then in 19, so a year ago, Neiman Marcus, who had bought half of our company, decided to sell it to another company, a big, big company called uh, TPG, Texas Pacific Group. They didn't want to own any companies that were under a billion dollars in sales. They wanted to sell us to someone. We didn't want to kind of be sold. It kind of felt gross. <laughs> so, so, so we did a transitional deal, and we stayed on the board, but we didn't want to work in a big... We, we liked being entrepreneurial. We liked having our, our thing. So uh, then I just, about two weeks ago, I did some of the J. Crew work over the time we traveled for about six months and then just started this Partners in Spade thing. But I've always wanted to do the thing I'm doing now. I really never cared about making a bag. I liked all the stuff around making a bag. And so that's, I liked my advertising career. I still like it. But now I want to solve problems in a new way. I don't just want to do advertising. I want to do store concepts. I want to find the best way to solve a problem, whether it's through architecture, whether it's through... So I hope over time that I'll be able to bring in a multi-partners in state is about collaboration and bring in an architecture firm to work on a specific project with me and bring in some other group to work on it. And just have this network of really interesting people that we always are collaborating with because I love being around you know, interesting people. And um, that's the goal, to just have a fun life and bring my daughter down to my office where she can play around. We have a pogo stick there that we, we have chained to the wall. It's the pogo stick rides, what was it, like $50 for five minutes and like $1,000 for 24 hours. It's just we're having all this fun with it. And it's chained so close to the wall, you actually couldn't even use it if you wanted to. And that's what we do all day. I mean, I mean that was kind of like you just had this. Someone left it at the store, and we just chained it up and put this ridiculous sign on it. And so um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really be successful. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, I really like the J. Crew example, uh, what you did with that. Uh, this is... So this is less about uh, the Kate Spade or Jack Spade thing, but can you give some other examples of what you'd like to do or uh, other examples where you've seen something that's become a real commodity kind of tr or something not that you wouldn't associate with, uh, you know, the same kind of appeal? Turnaround examples uh, for such brands? Yeah, I mean, I, I have one example of something that's not for one particular brand, but for a lot of brands. I want to start a like a sixth media company, which would be the opposite of outdoor and it would be called indoor and it would be uh, a permanent space in New York City that would be rented out uh, for a three-month period of time to different brands but we would have a curatorial board maybe someone from the Guggenheim or Jeffrey Deitch myself and you would have to either be invited or approved to do to do an experience in the store for your brand so it wouldn't be bad. We'd have to control it. So, for example, when the Guggenheim had the Armani show, I thought, that's basically a brand show. You know, they, they underwrote it, right? But so this would be like a museum, and you would have people like Paul Smith who do something great. I know that advertisers like Absolute could probably do something, turn it into a nightclub at night. But we would, we would actually create these experiences. I, I want to do it for Kate Spade in the middle of the winter, just have a park in there, like for, for mothers and the swings and have an ice cream truck in there and just to give them a, a really nice experience to have, not even sell any bags. But I, I want to have this media company because pop-up shops come and go, you know, temporary spaces. A lot of companies don't run retail stores, but they want to experience something. It's better than outdoor because you can smell it, see it, hear it. You can have your staff in there. You can get this whole experience out of it. And then 
It's like when you come to New York, I would want the Japanese to say, hey, I'm going to go to see what's going on indoor, and then I'm going to the MoMA, and then I'm going to the Guggenheim, so it has to be as good as any museum show. But it would be a company, you'd, you'd, you'd buy or lease a building, you'd mark up the lease, and then we'd have a group of people who would help you think of the ideas and also execute them for companies. And I still want to do that. And I think that would be a great medium for companies who don't want to do it themselves and aren't able to do it themselves. So it's, it's, a, it's another form of media. So if you look at a rate card in Vogue and it says, okay, this is $40,000 a month for a full page in September, and you look at ours and you say, okay, I can get for $40,000, I can get this whole space. And I'm going to get a lot more press on it because no one's going to write up my ad, right? And I'm going to have people coming and getting excited about who I am and what I do. Um, that's, that's a goal of mine, and, and that's one thing in this book I'm writing called Things I'll Never Do. <laughs> well, I think that's a really interesting idea, but for trying to execute that idea, I can see there being some problems. Do you have a, a method or a, a process for vetting out the validity and how you would maybe change it down the road if you're going to really do that? I think it would be you'd have to have a have a curatorial board and I think there would be a voting system on it to approve it. And we would also could be retained to say we'll come up with the idea for you. Let's say it's Nike for example who's a pretty open-minded smart company, right? Or Apple. And Nike would come and say we're interested in this doing something with you and our our in-house team has these ideas, and they would present them, and we would say, I'm sorry those don't work, but we're happy to work on some ideas with you. So we want to do an indoor track and have physical trainers in there, and we want to have all this stuff and old footage from the Olympics and all this other, whatever it is. It would, be, it would be tough, and I think smart people, it's like when you show an ad campaign to someone and you have a really strong creative team working on it, like, they fight for the, for the good work, you know, and, and, and you wouldn't need a lot of advertising. You, you could have three in a year, and then it, it, could, it could be advertised like in a museum show, and then go to Japan, you could have one over there where it would go into an empty building. But I think you'd, you'd, a lot of people just wouldn't do it because they wouldn't get it. But you could, you could go after, I know that I could probably get Paul Smith to sign up, I know that Kate Spade could do it, and just be an example to show, look at this thing, look how it worked, look how much press it got, and then it would start working. But I think you just have to be strong about it because if someone went in there and then just like put their product all over the, the space, it would lose all its credibility. You know? And the next time, no one would want to come see it. So you just have to say, look, you can come up with the idea, but we have to make sure it's exciting. Yeah? Two more? Yeah. When you're, when you're, uh, it seems like a, a lot of the struggle you've had is is being like influenced and aligning yourself with uh, products and different ideas to create a brand. Um, we're just kind of the middle ground of of an authentic product, like Levi's, for example, um, and then uh, c comparing it to these these products that are aligning themselves with other kind of ideas and and lifestyles. So, one more time. So, so like. You've got these jeans that were are authentic because you know miners use them in their in their workwear, yeah. compared to um, like bags that you're you're selling, um, and and how do you, how, where do you kind of try and establish an authenticity like authenticity of these these new ones? Is it again through these other products or? Yeah, I think it's through. You can never you know the thing that's sad is you can never actually create a false history. I mean, you can make one up, but you can't. I mean, I, I would give anything to have 100 years of history with Jack Spade over putting it in a hardware store eight years ago, you know. Um, 
But I think the way you do it is, for example, with the J. Crew store is actually leaving that store alone really was, I mean, people thought that was great that they didn't make it into a J. Crew, typical J. Crew store, right? They left a lot of the elements there. The neighborhood liked it. Um, they actually had the Strand bookstore do the books and said the Strand did it. And by giving Strand the credit by that association, it says they're, they're, that's the real deal. I mean, that's the oldest bookstore there, there is in New York, you know? Uh, I think there are a lot of these little ways to do it. I think you have to think about if you're in like sports, do you have a real, you know, someone actually wearing it, which is the obvious idea, like, you know, the sports guys wear it and they endorse it. And what do you do with it? But it's challenging. Like, like with Kate, there was nothing really authentic about it. It just had, the timing was right and I think the product was right. So, I mean, I think more about these things now because I think it's missing a lot. A lot of the authenticity and a lot of the background on where these things come from hard for brands to struggle. I was asked by a company recently to help them find out who they are. Because they can't tell the employee like what they are. I mean they don't they don't know kind of, you know, what they stand for, you know, like they, they really don't have a point of view. And you have to dig back into their archives. I mean they're about seventy years old and I'd go back and find something about maybe the, the owner, the first guy who did it. What is there has to be something written about why he did it, what it wasn't build something around it. Or did it start in a saddle factory, you know, somewhere, which would be really neat. You know, or you make it up and say it did. <laughs> no one's going to remember. So I think you just have to look at the problem and try to come up with a, well, what would be interesting to do with this? All right, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Um, a lot of your projects seem to take advantage of the eclectic environment of New York, and um, they come off really well. And I, I think it seems like it's part of that is because you're part of that fabric. What if I were to ask you to do something intentionally outside of New York City, somewhere where you're not necessarily familiar with, how would you approach that? I mean, I would have to you know, get kind of involved and immerse myself, I think, in the, in the city. Um, but if I knew the city, I could probably figure it out. Um, you know, I know a lot of really great places in San Francisco that I think you could do some kind of neat things with. Um, but you're right, New York is an eclectic town, and a lot of people have you know, th th these ideas wouldn't work in a lot of other cities. Um, they wouldn't, I mean, for example, my new store, Partners in State, wouldn't, I don't think people would understand it in a lot of other cities. So it, it is a benefit to be in New York City because you're, you know, a lot of people are knowledgeable about art and knowledgeable about, like, ideas and things like that because it's, it's the media capital. You've got a lot of advertising people and people think like that. But I'm sure if I went to my hometown back in Arizona, you know, everyone would just say, what's, what's, what's that, you know? I don't think, it, I honestly think it would just go, go it wouldn't go anywhere. So, um, yeah, you're right. It would be more difficult to do certain things in other, in other places. Just out of curiosity, are you curious to try something outside of New York, or are you just going to stay there for a little while? No, I'd love to find something outside of New York, yeah. No, we're looking for, we're looking for business right now. Do you have some? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. That was fun. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.